Welcome to VMN Volume 3, Episode 12. The date is February 22nd, 2023. VMN is produced and transmitted from unceded Abenaki territory of so-called Vermont. Today we will continue our discussion with Margaret Elizabeth regarding the attempt at adding a sex work plank to the platform of the Greens. The Green Party has been a front in the culture wars. Margaret is a co-chair of the Lavender Caucus of the Green Party. Additionally, we will be discussing the issue of reactionaries trying to hijack various candidacies in the Green Party and what has been done about this. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you very much. So tell, tell us what happened with the campaign for uh, to add a sex work plank. Well, my goodness, that it was it was an adventure. Uh, so it's a bit of a history kind of lesson. I don't mean to, to go back too far in time. But my personal advocacy for the sex workers rights plank in our platform was how I ended up becoming elected to represent the NLGC, the National Lavender Green Caucus, at the national level as a rep. They were looking for people to advocate for this plank, which we had written and wanted someone who could who believed in it and wanted to make the arguments in front of our peers who would push back. I strongly advocate and believe in all workers' rights and sex workers' work. So as a consequence, it seemed easy for me to take up this mantle. My personal involvement not, notwithstanding, I believe strongly in empowering all working individuals. And I understand a lot of issues around sex work and all the rest. I believe that our platform amendment addressed all of the legitimate and serious concerns the people that expressed in our party. So I'll kind of get to the, the outcome of that vote, and then I'll tell you about how we got there. So in the end, it required a two-thirds majority to adopt a platform plank, and we missed that two-thirds majority by seven votes. We were really, really close. Most people agreed with what we were advocating for, but to, to not put too fine a point on it, sometimes sex workers' rights can be sort of a third-rail issue. People will conflate several other things into that same stuff like exploited workers versus non-exploited workers and they're not the same thing uh, so it was a, a convoluted discussion many times coming down to less of a in my opinion less of a political objection to what was being proposed and more of an objection based on morals or religious background or sentiment my, my strong impression is that many of the Greens who voted against it had a, um, and I, I don't want to say a, a different religious uh, perspective than mine, but a different philosophical orientation towards how we should go about helping workers in general and sex workers in particular. Um, to, to, <laughs> I was shocked a little bit at some of the pushback that we received. Some of it was like normal political things, you know, like, oh, well, this pro this proposal isn't written correctly. You need to change this words or, these, you know, that kind of thing, uh, which is normal political discourse. But then the other kind of pushback was the we can't have like sex workers rights in our platform because then people will think we're a different kind of group in a large part. Those sorts of complaints to me seem to mirror the same sorts of complaints that we received initially as we were working through the eco-socialist parts of our platform and getting those adopted. There are many people who believe, and I, and I think they're correct in this belief, even though I think they might be factually mistaken here, well, odd nuance perhaps, but nevertheless, um, I think they believe correctly that their friends and they would not vote explicitly for a socialist party because for them, 
it's a word they've been propagandized about for for decades and so it's a, a tricky thing to get past and i think the same goes a lot with sex work especially depending on the part of the country you're from the greater midwest region some parts of the deep south and even some parts of the mountain west tend to be fairly conservative in their perspectives towards things like you know, the traditional you know nuclear family as it were and so for them it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing. They want to be progressive and represent their stuff, but but by and large, their progressivism and the stuff that they're thinking about in in relation to the Green Party, I should say, is more environmental oriented and or and or anti-war. And so, yeah, these other things like sex workers' rights and you know queer rights and stuff come up, but that's not why they're in the party. And so, their in my opinion, their views about many of these sort of other issues are not very evolved uh, in line with our perspectives it's what you would expect i guess in a in a broad based leftist sort of political party like we are there's a lot of sort of various you know groups of leftist sorts who have their own issues that they care about in fairness i mean the green party is an environmental party we're a part of a global network of green parties around the world who strongly advocate for you know climate justice social justice um reform of all of the policing systems that we deal with a, a bunch of issues of course but th these core things unite us all together and i think sometimes you know four core pillars and 10 key values means that some people uh, pick and choose what they want sort of like a salad bar and then leave the rest uh, which in a in a way like if that's your personal advocacy i can understand that 14 issues maybe is too many for a person to be really up to speed on knowledgeable about able to talk about and be you know connected to so i think sometimes it was that it was more just a focus on other issues in the party rather than these the workers rights and things of that nature over time so when we first did this it was back in 2017 that was when the plank was proposed we worked with the national lavender or the national women's caucus and we worked with several states to form this uh, document and i thought it had a lot of buy-in from all the all the folks who would be well let's say the principals who might be impacted by it and so i was i was staunchly advocating for it i mean perhaps i made some uh enemies in the party i guess by using some perhaps less diplomatic phrasing to folks i I would sometimes call them out for their puritanical morals and <laughs> get out of the South, that sort of thing, uh, which, you know, <laughs> you could be a progressive from any part of the country. That's not a thing. Um, and many rural people actually are super progressive, really. It, they couch it and phrase it in different terms, but leaving that bit aside. So I was I was pretty happy overall with the response, right? We were really close. I think that we haven't had another serious effort at doing that because of the, well, the overall political climate that shifted between 2017 and 2020. By the time 2020 was coming around, I think internally a lot of Greens were far more concerned about the ongoing war effort uh, building up in Ukraine and Russia, which obviously spilled over into an actual hot war, and the sorts of like... <clears throat> like conflicts which we were still we still experience right now right the the occupation invasion of syria the occupation of palestine all this kind of stuff so there's a lot of war concerns right now in the green party and i think legitimately those take a lot of people's emotional time and energy to deal with and process because they're huge issues and it's just the fact that 
people only have so much time that they can focus on things. And that is why it's nice to have a like a caucus like us, the NLGC, so we can we can spend our time doing that. That's kind of what we were constituted for. So if we're working together as a good, well-oiled machine, which sometimes we're not, in fact, right now we're less oiled than usual, um, then then we all collectively help each other in our weak spots so that overall we have a nice comprehensive vision that we can present and it addresses all of our stuff properly. I think that for me personally, I had a, it was an eye-opening experience. It was my first time ever as a delegate for a group of people advocating for an issue that I didn't personally write. It, it was already written. It was already done that I didn't have any input in doing. I just had to then, you know, advocate for it, which personally was challenging. I, and I liked it. I liked the sort of um, novelness of it. But then as I sort of got into the advocacy uh, of the whole thing, it, it the, I, maybe the novelness wore off a bit and the sort of realization of the oh my gosh, wait, I'm actually in a political party that isn't just a whole bunch of people all in the same wavelength. So you have to argue and use rhetoric and all the rest instead of just like everyone like rubber stamping stuff. I was a little, I was a little surprised because to be honest with you, I really did kind of think, my Pollyannish moment here, I really did think that like the Green Party would be different. It wouldn't be quote politics as usual right? in that way that it is. And and I guess it's not in some sense, but in that whole way that all politics is sort of personality driven, right? Like, especially when you're in the same party, we all ostensibly agree with the same beliefs. It's not like you can be like, oh, this opponent doesn't believe in that. Well, we all do. <laughs> so what's the thing? It's our it's our personalities. It's what people think about us and that sort of deal. And I was uh, that was my that was my eye opening moment. I I was. I thought I would be more like an activist group, you know, where people tended to be more cohesively bound and on the same page and willing to work towards the same goal. That was not the case. And I, it was my, I guess, my political awakening in that way. Um, and which was good because it was nice to throw off the blinders and see things how they are. But it was, it was a challenge because we didn't get it passed. And in the end, we didn't. And that, that led to some sore points like, Within the party itself, I don't know if it created any lasting tensions, but we we have a solid framework to approach it again. And I think it's one of those issues that we need to address sooner rather than later, especially in light of what's going on in our economy now, wherein many more marginalized people are being forced into like OnlyFans kind of stuff and, and other kinds of sex work action to you know pay their bills, to stretch the paycheck. And I think that so many, of course, <laughs> I think that so many people choose jobs, not because it's like, oh, this is my favorite thing I've always wanted to do, but I need to put food on the table, have a roof over my head. So I'm just getting the work I can get. Generally, my experience as a, as a queer person has been that a lot of us, particularly trans people are underemployed and they won't hire us. So we live in the same world as everyone else. We have the same material requirements. So our options to address those things are much, much more limited. As a consequence, my advocacy for sex workers' rights tended to focus on how minority folks in general had that as one of their best options for making income and how if we didn't support that, what we were essentially doing was allowing them to be exploited, allowing these unjust systems to be used against them because their work is illegal. 
it's like being a laundromat owner, right? If you own the laundromat and that's legal, if somebody robs from the laundromat, you call the police and there's an investigation. You've got insurance. You have all these other societal protections in place to make sure your business is successful. Whereas if you're any other, if you're a sex worker and that's your business, it's the opposite. Society wants to not let your business be successful. I think this is a, a mistaken approach. I appreciate like other countries like, uh, Norway and New Zealand working on these issues in real significant manners, coming up with indeed the the Nordic model and the New Zealand model of sex workers' rights and how to advocate for them. Generally speaking, in the Green Party, we advocated for the New Zealand model rather than the Nordic model. The Nordic model, I mean, briefly, decriminalizes, which is not the same thing as being legal. <laughs> and the New Zealand model legalized and made and gave workers protections and all the rest. So. That was a, the, the essential difference there. I found the conversations challenging because I, for me, it's one of those kind of interesting things where I, I might say to somebody, don't you agree that nuclear war is bad? And I expect them to say yes. But then instead, what they say is actually, have you considered the benefits of nuclear war? I'm like, no, I have not. Oh my God, what are you doing? So I don't, so it was weird when I got those kind of pushbacks to me, like unusual. <clears throat> Um, but it was a really great learning experience, and I hope that the next time I have an opportunity to advocate for this platform plank again, my experience in the past and and perhaps now the because I was new at the time, but in the party, but perhaps now I'll have earned the trust of my peers enough that they'll listen to my arguments more than just emotionally rejecting them. I've been around Pony of New York. Uh, most of the people there just wants laws about sex work off the books and we're, we're no different than any other worker you agree with that right absolutely yeah what would you do different well in terms of my own advocacy so i think what i would do is reach out more directly to the delegates who who had expressed like some positive reception to the idea but had moral reservations rather than political objections i feel like those were people, if you had a political objection, then it was usually principled in some other way. And I found that hard to address where I could easily speak to moral perspectives, I felt. But I but I chose not to do personal outreach on that. I, again, my first time as a delegate someplace, I didn't really know anyone. And I was kind of intimidated and nervous to be suddenly representing all these queer folks and wanting to really do a good job. And, and feeling the pressure of being new and, you know, sort of not just being new, but also advocating for an idea, which for many was quite on, on the well on the very edge of their limits of progressiveness. And so it was a, let's shift the Overton window in the party a bit, right? You're going to move here and then we'll be able to get this here. So I think this time around, uh, I would do much more personal outreach. I would talk to folks directly on the phone and listen to their concerns offline, you can clearly have a more nuanced, in-depth discussion, like on phone or, or via Zoom or something of that nature. Whereas email communications are good for some things, usually just plain information dumps, but not great for actual back and forth and dialogue and consensus building. And my, since we only missed by seven votes, I feel kind of bad that I didn't like make that initial advocacy because if perhaps if I would have, that would have been enough to swing it our way. And 
So we don't just get one bite at the apple, but the next time we get a bite, I want to make sure I do a little bit better. And I think that's a reference to like bobbing for apples, right? Like in the, in the barrel. I'm not really sure. So I, if I, but I think so. So I would need someone to hold my hair back. So I can get down in that water a bit better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, with moral objections, my question is, so you think that, um, that people, uh, per, people who are desperate enough to, 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 do sex work to live or find that their best option should be arrested by the police and thrown in jail and traumatized. I'm not a, a really good politician. And that's how I approach it. I'm, I'm like, a, am a very blunt tool at times when it comes to arguments like these. Oh, reasonable. I, I think that like now, again, my, my new, new neophyte phase in the party versus now, uh, when I was more, I guess, new and didn't understand how things worked, I was a bit more hardline about stuff. I was like, this is a morally correct thing. I don't have to tell you that. I just show you. Here's the thing. Now I realize it doesn't, I mean, that does matter, but there's so much more like weight given to somebody personally outreaching for somebody to then support your effort, provided that they're kind of like fence sitting about it to begin with. All it really needs is your personal, like, hey, do you want to talk about your concerns about it? Let's address those. And and you can usually overcome it, or at least I found I could. So this was like one of those like aha moments for me. I, I needed to shift instead of just sort of presenting the morally, what I thought, of course, was the morally correct perspective. And then just, you know, people do the right thing. And now I realize that sometimes people need help to do the right thing. <laughs> you would have thought I would have realized that before, but... Again, sort of missing the, I didn't understand how the Green Party worked. I was looking, I was an outsider looking in. And so once you're on the inside, it, it's not disillusioning in that way. It's it's more like, oh, wait, no, this is a political party. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's it, I think it's that. Um, it can be a little frustrating, though. I know that, like, because I believe so strongly in it, and I know it's a morally good cause, the fact that it didn't pass, I was really, like, I, I, I have to say, I used some pretty strong language with the delegates who voted against it. I called out their morals a bunch. I called out their parochial perspectives grounded in 18th century Puritan moral values. I was not really having a lot of it. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, needless to say, that made a few people uncomfortable, ruffled some feathers, but I stand by it. Uh, and I, But I will say this. It isn't necessarily the case that just because you have a christian background from a conservative place like the south or something that you have conservative ideas that's not true it tends to kind of be that way but that's what that's why stereotypes are the way they are right they're somewhat accurate but really not so i i wanted to kind of get that out of my head too because i did think initially that oh here's the delegates from let's say south carolina arguing against you know, this platform, that isn't what happened, but example. So then I would say, oh, well, of course, right? Because they're from South Carolina. Naturally, they wouldn't support this. That was, I had to overcome that. And that was, that was a challenge for me personally. What were the political objections? You said you didn't, weren't able to approach those. Uh, can you explain what, where people were coming from? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So like the biggest political objections tended to be around what I I thought were bogus sorts of like moral claims, i.e., well, if we 
if we uh, legalize sex work, then there will be more trafficking of women. Then there will be more exploited sex workers, uh, which doesn't make sense to me. It's it's the opposite. It's the I want to say and these are terrible comparisons. However, it's an, similar to how the drug war went. Right when it was all illegal and all criminalized everywhere, there were tons of illegal operations, and there was lots of human smuggling and lots of actual legitimate bad guy activity. I don't know how to phrase that. As things became legalized, the incentives for the illicit trade go away. There's it's not there, and and over time that reduces crime in all the places that they've implemented these laws, specifically like. It, marijuana laws I'm just talking about right now. So as those crimes go away, that becomes a safer place. Every time you want to go and buy, you know, like a joint, instead of going to some shady alley somewhere and, and risking arrest, everyone risking arrest in pre federal prison for decades, perhaps, it's legal. You go to the store, a corner store, and they have an insurance, you know, just like 7-Eleven does. And so it's a normal business. And normal businesses have business protections for their owners. They have protections for the workers. The workers can't be exploited. You have to pay me on time. You have to give me my hourly wage, my bit, whatever. And so it's all good in that way. And I think sex work should be the same way. In some places in America, it's quasi this way, like outside of Las Vegas city limits. Not in the city itself, but outside the limits, there's, as we all know, licensed brothels, many places with licensed sex workers who carry insurance, who regularly undergo STI testing and physicals and all the rest. So if you're a customer, you know you're having a, a good experience. It's going to be like going to a spa or something, and it's going to be safe, and it's going to be legal, and you're not going to risk any trouble. I think overall... America itself has become a, such a heavily policed nation that anything we can do to reduce the amount of police presence in our normal activities, our daily business is good. The So uh, like approaching those political objections was difficult for me because it, it, uh, I, in, I couldn't, it was a first premise issue, right? Their initial assumption is, well, legalization equals more like more crime. And I would say, no, legalization equals less crime. And I did not know how to bridge this like political divide. I don't know how to say to someone, if more people are safe, then there's more safety for everyone. And we all want more safety. This is essentially my approach to conservatives as they want to conserve their feelings of safety. I try to explain that as we give more rights to more people, sex workers, trans people, whatever, it increases safety for everybody, which is the thing they want. They want to feel safe. When more people feel safe, everyone feels safer. That's how that works. <laughs> so I, it was a, it was just this sort of, perhaps on my part even, it was a inability to, like, bridge this perspective that I couldn't understand. You know, like in in the way that I think there's a moral element to like, do not murder. When when you run into someone's like, I don't know, maybe murder is fine. It's hard to kind of like, how do you get to the point where like, oh, yeah, maybe they should you, they come to the point where, oh, yeah, maybe murder is not fine. I'm not sure. Um, lots of dialogue, of course, would help. And again, this might be a thing about personally reaching out and a, a political lesson I've learned. 
um, which I don't always do because sometimes being right is like, that's just a thing. Like you should just support equal rights. How am I having to argue for this? But it is what it is, right? And so I think that the the kind of addressing the does it lead to more crime issue was a political thing which you could address it with some statistics because there's only a few places that have decriminalized it number one or legalized it and so you have to give you know that context but unfortunately or fortunately depending on your point of view i guess the sample sizes of data in both those countries are, are small compared to the united states and so it can be difficult to extrapolate a study that's done on 10,000 people in one country and, and like bring it to America with five times the population in a massive geographic area where reasonably speaking, we have five or six distinct cultures in our in our country. And the ability to take one idea through all of those cultural perspectives and have it remain intact is, is pretty challenging. Yeah, I've I've run into the argument you've said that you know, we legalize it. There's going to be people trafficked, and and it's going to be terrible. But it, it the the people I that I personally know that put that voice out are incredibly irrational. These are people who will who will put out like ivermectin cures COVID and and post all sorts of weird conspiracy theories, and it's. Um, I think what you're talking about is a loss of uh, reality. In 1970, I think it was, I do not like this person, but Milton Friedman, who is this reactionary libertarian who, whose work led to what happened in Chile in 1973, he wrote a wonderful piece about how decriminalizing drugs will uh, legalizing drugs will make it better for everyone and it was all the arguments yes people will have protections then it, it'll drive the prices down there won't be as much profit in the market as a economist he could see this but of course he was willing to use murder or co-sign murder in chile to get his platform push put forth so i have a problem with them <laughs> i gotta be honest with you me too I, I, it's rare. Okay. So I think I like as a, as a person who isn't in politics, it, you can find yourself in a, in a position where you're always sort of pure about your views. You don't have to accept a compromise position. I, as a, as a, a person in the party who's in national leadership, I have been put into a couple of compromised positions that I'm not sure how to address. Like, for instance, we just recently had this uh, ra rage against war rally, which you perhaps heard about, yet it was dominated by right-wing grifters and the Libertarian Party and movement for the People's Party and you know, that stuff. Well, we signed on to it despite the objections of people like myself who, who were totally bringing this issue up. The I think the issue here for the Green Party is that it really is an anti-war party. And so any anti-war event is an event the Green Party is interested in. The, the the challenge here was a bit of a political naivete, in my opinion, which is that we didn't properly cognize the sort of um, co-opted nature of what was going on. There's, a, of course, another one coming up soon, the answer anti-war rally, which is much better. And I hope we also endorse it. We have a proposal to endorse that one as well. I think it would be tricky like to be endorsing both like here we are for like the actual anti-war rally, which is great, 
But then here we were semi at the rage against war, which actually was not so much raging against war, but more like raging against Ukraine defending itself, but then praising the Russian attacks, given that Putin has given several different causes belli, one of which was the elimination of LGBTQI plus people as a Western perversion taking over Ukraine. It's extraordinarily concerning to me as said queer person that my party would like endorse that sort of thing. And then when those issues are brought up, sort of like fall back on this idea that, oh, well, you're just, you know, using identity politics here. This isn't really an issue. Like the bigger point was the anti-war, not the, oh, maybe we'd still fine to go ahead and kill queer people. I mean, that part wasn't the thing. So it was tricky for me, no doubt. And I, I really struggled a bunch with a couple of my, and so this is, I don't know if it's out in the news yet, but several of my co-chairs on the steering committee resigned over this. They weren't interested at all in being connected with those people. And I don't blame them in the least bit. It, I, I, if I, I, I struggled with resigning myself. I, I have no, like I said to my colleagues on the national list, I completely like that the libertarians are anti-war if they are. And I completely like the people's party being anti-war. That's great. Heck, I even like transphobes being anti-war. The thing is, though, I'm going to stand over here on this corner with my anti-war sign, and they can go stand on that corner with their anti-war sign. I don't want to be associated with them. Bad people can have good ideas, right, and be for good things sometimes, like anti-war. So I'm not trying to dismiss their anti-war concerns. I'm simply trying to say we don't need to align with every group that shares one of our values. Like, what's that? <laughs> I thought it was a, I thought it was a terrible mistake. My colleagues, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly close vote. I mean, it was I don't know like sixty forty, let's say. So most co- most of my colleagues wanted to support it, and they they simply justified it as anti war, and they need to be seen as being anti war. And I and I get that, like I I really do, because a lot of Greens really did join, you know, during like the early two thousands when the anti war movement against Bush was super strong. And the and the Green Party was listed along with Code Pink and the Black Panthers as organizations to keep an eye on by the federal government because of our anti-war stance. And I, you know, and I appreciate my colleagues in the party who are like, that's their issue. Um, it, it's helpful for them to understand the intersectionality of these things, why and how these are all connected together. But it's a political education uh, kind of process. And I can you know, again, one of these sort of learning moments where I did sort of think that people who had been in politics longer than me would have a more nuanced, broad understanding of these things. This is not true. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up this uh, rage against the war machine, but you got it before me. Um, Matt Heimbach was there. There was all sorts of Nazis at that rally. And as an anti as primarily an anti-fascist, I was watching that. And I think one of our challenges as being anti-war people is that we have to use a to use old Marxist terminology. We need to have a united front that is principled, not a people's front like Stalin and Rip and and Hitler sitting down at the same table. The red brown alliance stuff is very real. Matt Heimbach is 
who is a who has a was the head of a neo-Nazi party, loves to talk about his socialist views. Yeah, he's for socialism for white people. He's still my enemy, and he's still going to wipe me out if he gets uh, power. We have to, we have just like the Baldies in the eighties and the ARA after that. We have to keep Nazis out of our scene, if even if we have to use our fists to keep them out. Um, I agree. I, you know, as a, I, I <laughs> over my time in life, I think I've I've shifted my personal perspective from being a very aggressive, sort of angry person when I was young, to being much more willing to use my words to accomplish my goals. But in the end. You know, there, there's this, what's the phrase where the rubber meets the road and where, where, where my tolerance meets the end and my tolerance meets the end. The moment people start advocating for the extermination of other people, for their imprisonment, for their marginalization, for their enslavement, whatever it might be that I don't care what their other views are, to be honest with you, they could agree with 80, 90, 100, well, 99% of what I believe in, but that 1% is enough for me to not be colleagues or comrades with them. You can't have a real anti-war movement unless it's based in a class perspective. Who suffers in war? It's the poor. We're always the ones who get sent. Rich folks don't go. They're, they are able to withstand the vicissitudes of war because of their vast wealth. People like me, people like you, any one of the normal people caught up in this have basically no power. We're drafted, we're conscripted, we're sent to front lines, we're subjected to tests and bombs and all the rest. All of the time, all we want to do is back be back home in our garden, having some tea and just trying to build a life which we find meaningful and valuable based on our own morals and perspectives. And so, like, I think that as much as I can be intimidated and feel really anxious and nervous when I talk to other people in public settings about these things, my, my desire to have a strong anti-war view for the party and my desire to personally not, you know, have my kids go to war uh, makes me overcome my my internal hesitancy, my anxiety. Like, oh no, I'll just sweat through all my clothes as I talk. It's fine. <laughs> uh, and you know, like I, I'm surprised because I wasn't, I I didn't join the Green Party specifically f to be anti-war. My mine was a a bit more of an environmental thing here. Like in Wash, I live in Washington State, and as you as you probably know, we have um, the South. Puget Sound orca pod that lives here, right? There's two of them. And one of our one of our orcas was captured 60 years ago. And she's been in Miami for the entire time, like locked up in well, SeaWorld, like one of those little pins, right? And so we've advocated for years and years here in Washington State to get a return to her family who are all alive. Um the, and it's it's a, a a way of life here in Washington State where all of the orcas have names they're all in a named family every one of them is known and so over the last well, 20 years we've been trying to get her back this year 2023 the owner of SeaWorld finally agreed to return her it's not quite that easy of course because she's been in captivity for so long that they have to really ease her back into the wild and and help her but this is good news i i feel like if we're able to get to a point where we can 
liberate our cetacean sentient being comrades on this planet, then we can definitely get to a point where we are able to understand the completely deleterious nature of war on our folks and we can address it. There's, uh, you know, there's, I guess, a couple of ways to think about this, right? But my approach specifically is there is no, quote, way to peace. Peace is the way. That's how you do it. And that means a commitment to consensus diplomacy. And that's hard, right? That just means talking a bunch. And boy, oh boy, do people get tired of that. But if what the alternative is people shooting at each other. And I'd rather folks spend months and months and months at a negotiating table rather than a week, throw their hands up in the air and be like, I guess there's no resolution here. Shooting guns is all we got. That's a terrible, terrible foreign diplomacy. And yet, when you look at the history of the United States, over and over, we do the two the two phases, right? We do the the velvet hand approach, right? The velvet hand of the free market covers the hidden steel fist of the U.S. military. You'll open your markets to us or we'll make you. And thus it is. And I think it's really destroyed most of America's credibility in the 20th century for like in the late 20th, 20th century, like. There was a time, I think, when America was viewed collectively generally as a more or less good guy on the world stage. That was gone, compromised, sold, bought, you name it, to the highest bidder, to corporate interests who solely were interested in generating profits. Eisenhower warned about it directly, and we never did anything about it. So, And the thing about the Nazis, yeah, I kind of... Huh. Not American Nazis. Oh boy, oh boy. But of course we have them. During World War II, there was a, a Madison Square Garden rally that was completely filled, sold out by American Nazis. We didn't do anything about that party. They simply disbanded, renamed themselves as another thing and kept going. So naturally, if we didn't do anything about our Nazi problem, we have a Nazi problem. That's what we got. And we even brought some because we didn't have enough back to our own country. So we have to have an internal discussion in a real way to like understand what's happening. Not to put too fine a point on it, but as you probably have seen in places like Boston, there are rallies where essentially these Nazi groups are marching down the street all in their brown shirts and attacking like queer events, drag events, all the rest of this kind of stuff in extraordinarily violent ways. So not... <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't, <laughs> as an advocate for peace, um, I don't want to, I don't want to kill anyone. I just want to incapacitate them. And I'd prefer the Nazis be incapacitated and not have an ability to impact our society any longer. Yeah. So you you got to punch them. <laughs> you, may, you may have uh, seen the straight pride uh, thing in 2019. Uh, my wife, who's going to walk by in a second, was the elderly woman that made national news being arrested by the uh, by the police. Um, she was there as a medic and she didn't get out of the way fast enough. Yeah, I've I've had a lot of inner interesting interactions with the protest police. I, I mean, they're slightly different sometimes than the normal like patrol cops and stuff. But yeah, they are is. They, they're what I've noticed during the George Floyd rebellion in the past few years is medics in particular and um, live streamers and people who are documenting this stuff that that aren't mainstream news get 
specifically singled out and targeted. If you can, if you can intimidate the medics to not showing up, other people won't show up either because they know they're not gonna be able to get it, you know, like, oh, I got this injury real quick. Let me get a bandage or flush my eyes out because of, you know, tear gas or something. So I think it's really, you know, a deliberate effort here. The same thing with targeting independent journalists. Not every streamer is an independent journalist. I'm not saying that, but all the independent cameras. So this is this is the documentation that they don't want to see. That whole like let's wear body cameras and stuff. What a joke that's been. If they can turn the camera off before they commit a crime, how is that helpful? So it's been a false sense of security that we could now hold them accountable because of these camera things, right? And we. I think broadly in America have an accountability problem. We don't hold people accountable. Americans love second chances. This is true. If a person screws up and they give a sincere mea culpa, acknowledge what they've done and commit to doing better, and then their actions kind of match it, Americans are super quick to forgive and move on. And they'll be like, oh, no, that person changed. But, you know, just like the scorpion who showed up at the riverbank and convinced the turtle to give him a ride across the river, you can change your costume as much as you want, but your internal nature really doesn't change unless you have, well, like an epiphany, right? And it, and it, one of those kind of, I don't know, moment of God things or something, and you really sincerely do change, but mostly that's not the case. I have a saying in, in uh, the Indian subcontinent, they're still mad about stuff that happened. 3,000 years ago. In Europe, they're still mad about what happened 500 years ago. Uh, in America, they forgot what happened yesterday. You're not wrong. I I sometimes feel we, we like modern Americans, are the, the first series of Americans who have a, like, we're like an adolescent nation in, in a real way. We're kind of in our late teenage years going through a bunch of growing pains with our hormones all over the damn place. So we're making a lot of rash decisions that we're going to regret in the future. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're not as mature as other cultures yet. We don't have that, like as, as white folks in America, as colonizers here, we don't have a collective memory that, that exceeds basically eight, the 1880s, wherein it's a, it's a memory of collective bloodshed and oppression. And so I think that that that's not to say other cultures don't have that. They do lots of it all, all throughout history. But over time, your culture is able to mature and get to a point where reconciliation happens. People are addressed like their issues or concerns are addressed. I think that in America, we we're in a unique position in some ways because we didn't completely exterminate all of the native populations and nations that were here we still have uh, quasi sovereign nations within the united states that aren't governed by the federal government yet are uh, and so it's it, it's kind of an interesting situation personally i would prefer to to give the land back <laughs> you know lease it whatever you got to do like in a modern context because modern societies are what they are but the ownership of it First, well, I don't believe anyone should own the land, but you know that said, it should belong to the people who are here. And to to that extent, like what I what I think is the way this would work in a modern context is these groups of people. Let's say even a modern city state, like 
I don't know, um, Wichita Falls would would then have a system where the people collectively in Wichita Falls would decide how they want to use those natural resources together. I don't know what they have there. Maybe they got oil or chickens or something. So let's say it's chickens. So they're like, no, we should use our chickens to not make chicken nuggets. We should make chicken racing a thing. And then they breed all their chickens to do chicken racing. I'm not sure, but they should get a chance to decide how they want to use their resources rather than having a company come in out from outside the community and then either extracting those resources without distributing the wealth to the people, which is typically what happens, or you know, actually exploiting the people who are the workers there as well. In many countries, they'll do both. And we don't have to follow suit there. We don't have to do what other places do. We don't have to exploit workers. We don't have to do those things. You know, it's there. There is a way out of a lot of these really thorny problems, which when you get down to like the material reality of them, mostly come to satisfying, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People need money to have their basic needs met, shelter, food, clothing, and healthcare. Once that happens, they can move up and start actualizing other things. Clearly, the system doesn't want that. So it keeps everyone down at this bottom rung. So you got to work one eight-hour job, go to a four-hour part-time job, and then you've got six hours for yourself to sleep and, and go do it all again. How can you organize? How can you stand up and go to a protest when that's the thing you have to do? And if you miss your one shift, you could get fired. There's no, you know, these right to work states, there's no guarantee that you could just have a great career and one day show up, gone, we found somebody who'll do the job for half price and you're out. And that's not a, co that's not a society that will really like stay cohesive through the long term. It's being specifically fragmented and, and, and segmented into these really, um, let's say, I don't want to say like pitted against each other segments, though that tends to happen. Uh, but really these segments of people who are told that what they are competing for is a very, very limited resource. And so as a consequence, they have to prioritize their in-group over the out-group. And so th I think that's typically what happens. But of course, that's not true. When, when we talk about, let's say, fossil fuels, which are awful, of course, but in the way that like, oh, well, we have to, we have to go to another country, like let's say, you know, Venezuela and blackmail their government to do the thing we want to give us. We don't need to do that. We actually produce enough of that internally ourselves so we don't have to do these things. Yet the companies who sort of control our government now, thanks to Citizens United, compel us. It's, it's really awful. And I, I think many Americans don't understand the real deleterious and destructive consequence of Citizens United. And it's going to really, really be a t difficult challenge for us in the 21st century to resolve this. What a disaster that is. I, it's, it's one of the most egregious laws I've ever seen. And it is so pernicious because for the first time, like, so did uh, several things. Number one, it recognizes corporations as individual entities, like as people, which is very strange to me. How can how can that be the case? But then, of course, it lifted campaign contribution limits 
So now, instead of a corporation being limited to was it ten thousand dollars that it used to be, and so they would distribute that basically amongst every politician, so that no matter who got elected, you know they had a little hand in that pie. Now they don't have to do that. They can just dump millions of dollars at the candidate that they want, and this has led to a super partisan congress we've seen over the last several congresses we see the same thing less in the senate because it's less frequently elected but nevertheless the same kind of hyper partisan split is exists there it's, it's clearly noticeable though in the house of representatives and especially with i want to say like it's almost as if we're seeing the resurgence of like the 2001 2002 um Oh gosh, who are those people in the in the Republican uh, the Tea Party? It's like we're seeing the resurgence of that inside the Republican Party, but this time with a very very specific evangelical Southern Baptist Christian bent, and that is like a, a huge issue, obviously, because there are very little places in our in our laws where one's religious perspective should outweigh. Or, or or give precedence, be given precedence than the written law that we all agree to operate by. We don't all agree to operate by some, some God standards, but we all agree to operate by these law standards. This is done by us. And so I think it's a, it's a miss. It, it's part and parcel of it, though. Right? We've seen this attack on government institutions going back since the mid-80s as the conservatives have tried to undermine public confidence in every public institution to, to the point now where the CDC is a, is essentially a very compromised organization. And you do have like the former president of Monsanto, the head of the FDA. This is a completely weird and untenable situation in any real sort of uh, government. And so it's, 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 I think pretty plain, plain to me that perhaps we live in like a plutocracy but I would call it more of a kleptocracy. The wealthy are stealing their the money from us. It is a specific transfer of wealth from the lower class to the upper class. And we see it in a couple of broad policies like the ACA, the Americans for the Affordable Care Act that Obama passed. Whilst it provides the opportunity for insurance for all Americans, it mandates it. And it mandates fines if you don't do it and prison term as well. This isn't an opt-in system. This is this is a thing where you have to give your money to an insurance company. You have to. And that's bad. <laughs> that's not the right word, but that's bad. Yeah. In in places like Hungary and Poland, what we're seeing is uh the right wing capturing government institutions like in Poland They've attacked the judiciary in uh, in Hungary. They've done something similar, and they've also they're also attacking the uh, the independent press in in Hungary. I I take it you're saying that we're seeing the same kind of capture in the United States. We are. I uh, two years ago I gave a presentation during the Green Party's annual national meeting called LGBTQI rights are a canary in the coal mine of women's rights. And I specifically looked at the rise of the Polish Law and Justice Party and how that happened. And of course, like their their declaration of initially their declaration of these LGBT free zones, nobody did that. 
two years later, they won power. And then there were 50 cities that actually enacted that stuff. And the, the thing is, this it's hard to see what the end game is. But the end game, once you go through this process, is both really clear and depressing. It's it's so depressing and it's I my perspective in its myopicness. So specifically confining my discussion here for just a moment to to Poland and then bring it here to the United States. Um, <clears throat> so the rise of the Law and Justice Party was largely funded by Christian evangelical dark money that was flowing into Europe. Heritage Foundation Foundation, like 15 other groups, sent more than $57 million between 2010 and 2020 to European right-wing political parties, law and justice being one of them, with the specific idea that they would also write policies for these right-wing government or political parties in Europe and have them try them, get them passed there as a way to sort out the kinks, a way to sort out the objections and rewrite those things here in the United States. What one thing I think people miss when they look at this, there's an organization called Tradition, Family and Property in the Catholic Church. I have a particular axe to grind against them because they took over the grounds of one of the uh, schools I was sent to. Um, St. Francis Prep in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania was sold to TFP. And TFP in Poland is, a, is, a, is associated with a group called Ordo Luris, which is head, head, spearheads those uh, repressive uh, um, movements in Poland. Yeah, they do. Um, it's, a real, it's a real like armed militia wing of their right wing political parties. One of the things that, that struck me, so in, in my analysis of what was going on in Poland, it became really interesting to see a bunch of BBC interviews with Polish people and hear their words about what they felt about the LGBTQ you know, situation, what was going on. Most of them, and this is like a common argument, you hear it in many, many places. It, it, was, it goes along these lines, right? So Poland has a declining birth rate and a rising employment rate, i.e. more Poles are being employed, which means wages go up. Well, Polish employers are not wanting to pay higher wages. And because the birth rate of Poles is declining, that means that they have to rely on foreign labor markets to bring in enough workers to fill the jobs, especially at less rates than native Poles would demand because of their high employment rate now, which of course then means just like in America, conservative polls would be like they're taking their jobs uh which of course they're not but this leads to this this idea that so poland so what according to the polish catholic church which is wedded very closely to the state now what makes somebody a good pole is that they're catholic they're married and they make polish babies that's what it is and so as a consequence, for this is what this led to. So those LGBT free zones led to two years later, the Law and Justice Party uh, proposing a ban, a, a near total ban on abortions that did not pass. But two years after that, it did. And now there is a 95% ban on all abortions in Poland. And they will prosecute you if you leave the country to get one in another state where it is legal. This was always the end goal because... The only way you can prevent the declining birth rate is to prevent Poles 
not foreign folks, but Poles from having abortions. So move that here to the United States. As we know from the 1980s, there was a big concern about the falling white birth rate. And they came up with three ideas to sort of address it. Number one, they could encourage immigration from Eastern Europe and Western, so we get more white people here. But they reasoned they couldn't control that, so we would still get more people who weren't white. So they ruled that idea out. Number two, they could pay women, like in like in some Eastern European countries did, to have babies. But that would mean they would need to pay all women to have babies, and they don't want to do that. They only want white women to do it. So in their analysis of all the data for the abortion laws, once it became legal, they discovered that the largest group of people having abortions were white women. So they reasoned that the only way to fix this was to prevent abortions for white women. That's the way to fix the declining birth rate, and that's what they've done. This is why they attacked the LGBTQ community first, because if you can control and police a trans woman's body or a gender non-conforming person's body, it's easy to take the next step to controlling cis women's bodies. You're already in the process of controlling bodies. And if since the goal is to prevent white women from having abortions, so the white population rises, that's what we are seeing. The ban on these abortions, the the threat of prosecutions in other states. Like, how is that going to work? Is is like is Washington State going to extradite somebody to Texas who came here to get an abortion? Probably not. And so, what does that do then? Right. This is such a strange and disturbing situation that we're in in our country. But you can look back very very clearly and see this conservative Christian agenda being played out. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a, a documentary on Netflix called The Family, and it's about the religious Christian right here in the United States, basically setting up an academy and then grooming politicians to be in office who support those very fundamentalist Christian views. Remember, like they want to go back to a Christian theonomic dominionism, which is their goal. This isn't like a a modern democracy, which is influenced by people who have Christian beliefs. They want to go back to a basically a second century style government. And these are probably the same people, honestly, who believe that only property owners should vote. Later today, we're going to be having a, another podcast. It's a busy day for me. And one of the questions that was given by my panels was, how can you actually short circuit extradition to Texas from a place like Vermont or Washington, the lawyer's first answer was you can't. And it seems like that's something that political people like yourself and other people are going to have to to pressure states to break the full, full faith um, of the Constitution to stop people from being extradited for abortion or for uh, having take, taking their trans kid to get to see a doctor out of Texas. Um, I don't want to see another civil war, but those clouds are on the, those clouds are on the horizon, sadly. They are, especially because of the issues involved. Uh, it's I mean, it's not the same thing as states refusing to participate in extradition to return uh, you know escaped people who had been enslaved but it's not 
terribly dissimilar. A lot of states pass it, pass laws, and they're just like, "I'm not, we're not extraditing anybody," and didn't. And I think that's happening now in progressive states like Washington. We just passed a bill that said we wouldn't extradite anybody if they came here to get an abortion. So that's good, but. In a way, it's not great because, okay, so you've come here to Washington to get an abortion, but you're not staying. So then you go back to where you came from and then you get prosecuted. So it's it's a bit of a, I don't, like if they came and stayed, that's one thing. But in the sort of like fly here, spend a week, get a procedure done and go home, I don't think that's a thing you can do anymore. And it does it does bring into sharp relief the sort of political tensions that exist between uh, the left and the right broadly speaking and the sort of different ideas for our country that we have i know that many people on the there are like conservative religious folks who are on the left rare but true and they don't dis, they don't terribly disagree with a lot of those ideas about birth rates and protecting the population and stuff uh but they might agree with things like workers rights and everyone should get equal pay you know that sort of deal and so you can sometimes find them advocating for stuff that seems quite reasonable women who stay at home and are like stay-at-home moms should be given a, a compensation as if they were workers how does that happen probably ubi uh which i advocate for anyway but but there's these sort of competing ideas. In the end, though, it's about controlling their bodies. And it always has been. This is essentially it goes there's when does it stop going back in history? You just have to arbitrarily pick a time. Right. But the, our entire history as a nation as a modern democratic nation, let's say, has been marred by the majority disallowing the vote and the actual enfranchisement of every minority group that has ever been in our country. And it's, and, and I, this is a kind of a sobering thing to say, but basically minority groups only get equal rights in the United States when the majority decides that that's okay for them to have now. Yep. Uh, so we have gone all over the map with different ideas, but, but before you, we call this quits. I want to talk about the issue of reactionary people uh, using, trying to use the Green Party as a platform. There was, in Vermont, we have the uh, Green Mountain Peace and Justice Party, and one of these individuals came in and tried to seek our presidential nomination. Luckily, we found out he was, you know, wore a Confederate shirt to a rally. He's, um, he believes the right wing's take on Antifa and uh, just a whole bunch of terrible things. The worst thing we dug up on him when we were researching him that is that he admitted that there's no teeth in a party enforcing its platform on candidates. Tell us about what you've seen. And if you want to name names, I don't care. I've We've already written an article about this guy. Uh Ah, so this is kind of like it's an interesting thing. There are there has been uh, like talking social media spaces all over about infiltrating the Green Party and taking our ballot line. Uh, so 
kind of step back for a second. There are only four electoral political parties in the United States, which means that they have ballot access in the states, right? There, there are other political parties, but they're not electoral parties. So because the Green Party has ballot access, if you want to run as a non-Democrat or non-Republican, you got two choices, either as a libertarian or a green. The Libertarian Party has more money than we do. It's a simple fact because they'll take corporate donations. And so it's harder, in a sense, for a random person to walk in and co-opt that group. You have to be sort of moneyed in that in that space to do it. Whereas in our group, because we're volunteers almost completely, except for like three people, uh, it's easier to come in with a, let's say, a populist personality and be like, look, I got a chance to win. And there's only like, you know, a few votes to have to get in this one state because the state party is smaller or people won't turn up. There's a, a lot of reasons for this. But essentially, because of our decentralized nature and the fact that you don't have to have money to run, we don't like it's a small amount of money that we require a candidate raised before they're considered like an official candidate that. It's easy, I think, to or it's it's easy looking for people to come in and try and get a state party to get them on the on the ballot or whatever. That said, that our actual presidential nomination process takes place during the annual national meeting, the the year of a presidential convention, where all the delegates send other or states send other delegates to vote, you know, for uh, the POTUS candidate. Um, so, in the practical sense. Whilst it is the case that lots of state parties see these sort of fringe guys, like there's this, I, I want to say joker. So there's this joker <laughs> down in like, you know, Florida who is, um, you know, proud to buck the party. Like, why would you join a party if your whole intent is to like do what they don't want and say what they don't want you to say? Like, it's, it, you're just exploiting, a, you know, a thing. And people wearing confederate shirts to a rally that and then you ask them about it and they're like well <laughs> it's heritage not racism it's like look your heritage is racism dog i don't know what to tell you you gotta own that crap you can't ever get past it if we don't own it and we don't want to own it and i think that sometimes when we're confronted with these like challenging problems that you and i we didn't do this Right. We're we're a different generation, but we're the generation or of people who are alive now who have to and we inherited it and we got a choice. We can either pass it on or we can fix it. Personally, me, I'm a see a problem, fix it kind of kid. And so I don't want to pass it on. I, I have the tools to fix this. My colleagues do, my contemporaries in society do. We have to believe in ourselves and have confidence as a as a Gen Xer. It's a really strange place to be in society because largely we're ignored. Right? It's boomers and millennials, like there's no in between. And so we've been personally, like the whole Gen X generation has been pushed out of power. The boomers kept it, and now the millennials are challenging them for it and getting some of it for themselves. But we in this middle group didn't have it. So I think therein lies a, a loss, a great loss of potential, because we as a collective have a lot of progressive ideas. We, we're not the same as our parents, and we haven't had a chance to really be in positions of power in a substantial way to, to make the changes that we want. Almost to a person, 
uh, in, within my social circle, nobody wants us to be at war with anybody. And yet, if you were to do like a poll of broader society, that poll might tell you that like 54, 54% of Americans support sending billions of dollars of, mili of military aid to Ukraine and, and not necessarily fixing our own problems. And some of them are hard, like social issues you can't just throw money at. But as you, we all know, this chain derailment in East Palestine, as it turns out, putting money at that problem fixes it. Bad train tracks, inefficient trains, trains that are way too long, all these things can be addressed properly if we reallocate our priorities and assets. The I, and I think that the Gen X folks and probably the millennials and, and the, the Gen Z folks coming into power now who are just now over like 18 or whatever you have to be in your state to run are not just like they're not all progressives. Right? That's not that's a myth, uh, but they're generally more progressive, especially on social justice issues and understand intersectionality better. And so when you do talk about like anti-war, they connect it very clearly to the struggles of poor people. They connect it very clearly to the struggles, particularly of um, BIPOC individuals. And they can connect it very clearly to the sort of imperial hegemony that has dominated 20th century politics. And they roundly reject it all. They don't necessarily have something else to put in its place, but they're, you know, that's the rejection of it. And so... Yeah. As much as the specter of civil war looms, I do have a general sense of optimism in, in what will be coming from the next generation of political leaders. I think as a, as a leader in a party, not a publicly elected official, my kind of job here is to help my party prepare itself for young leadership who can lead us into that next phase of things. So... I know sometimes my colleagues think I'm I'm young leadership. It's weird for me to think about myself in this manner, but sometimes it sometimes and this oh my lord I can't believe I'm about to say this. <laughs> sometimes the fifty year old is the youngest one in the room, and so like what do you do? You're like I'm not sure I'm the young one, but okay. Uh, so you know young leadership. Um, but we have like a challenge all across the country. Right. Basically, it's all these 65 plus folks in charge of our country. And as you age, we all know this stuff. It's all pretty well known. Our political views crystallize. Our philosophy tends to, you know, concretize. And we find ourselves mentally inflexible in certain respects. And it's it's a product of generation and personal upbringing. And, and then that sort of thing where... Like you, if you if you discover that you let's say have some inherent racism that you didn't know about, and many of us do, if you're raised in the United States, it's just part of the culture. So lots of us have inculcated like racism and sexism in particular into just how we are. We don't think of it in this way, but once it's pointed out to you, you if you're a moral person or an ethical person, in my belief, you have an obligation to internally examine it. And to try to overturn that and really it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of effort because many times if if you're 
philosophy has concretized around these ideas, then you're not just getting rid of the idea of racism, you're overturning your entire philosophical orientation, which is scary for people. Um, I, I think there's also some people are different. It's I had a discussion with a former uh, um, Nazi. He was a, a recruiter for uh, Pioneer Little Europe. And we, we were talking about how you help someone leave the white supremacist movement. And his, his response is most of these people are not um, self-reflective. They don't, they can't look at themselves. So it's, it's not even worth talking to them about it. And I think I don't know where to look at with a person who is not um, self-aware of what drives them and why they do things that they do. I, it's a mystery. Sometimes I think of it, it's the structure of their psyche or even brain or not. You know, I th think it's something that could be, you could do uh, a year's worth of podcasts on what, what self-awareness is. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong about that uh, because there, there's another component too, right? Like self-awareness is you can't fix anything until you become aware of it. That's absolutely the case. But then then it's the okay, yeah, I'm aware I'm this way. And there's still people who will want to work on themselves. They'll just be like, whatever, my parents were, my generation is, and they're okay with that. I see it a lot, especially in attitudes towards queer people, particularly around, you know, things like pronoun usage. There's I've lots of people simply shrug and say, well, that's not important. And, and then I want to, sometimes I'll be a little trolly and like, well, you know how pronouns are important. The AR and AR-15 stands for assault rifle. And they will get very mad at me for that. I'm like, ah, I guess words matter, huh? Um, and I think it, it's a bit of a perspective thing, right? They think that pronouns don't matter. But then when you show them that words do to them actually matter, if they're a compassionate person or have empathy, they can connect those things together. Aha! Well, maybe that word matters to you in the same way I got all like, er, when you said that wrong, you know, they, I understand now why you get all upset when I say your thing wrong. That's a person you can reason with and talk to, right? There's some middle ground to be found. Yet you and I both know there are tons of folks who, I don't even know if they actually hold these positions sincerely, but they will advocate and talk as if there is no flexibility, there's no room, there's no self-reflection. It's just these almost memorized talking points that they'll just spout over. I remember a conversation we were having with a um, myself and a few of my colleagues in the party were talking with our libertarian counterparts uh, just uh, because we often, as it turns out, participate in joint lawsuits because both third parties are kicked off ballots. So we got to sue the state, that kind of deal. Anyway, we were talking about it and our libertarian friends told us that they really felt bad for us. They felt the Greens had a much harder job to get elected and be on the ballots than they did. Because for a libertarian, you don't have to advocate any position whatsoever. All you have to do is just talk about your libertarian philosophy. That's it. Whereas a green, you actually have to articulate positions, solutions, all the stuff. You can't just advocate for green philosophy. And so it makes it harder for us because the moment you start putting specifics down, people will nitpick it, cherry pick you know, stuff out of context and really present an odd perspective. So I thought that was interesting My, that 
there is a recognition that if you are a a party which is driven by philosophy and faith, that you don't need to articulate consistent policy positions because that's less of what people care about. Whereas if you're a party that's advocating for you know anti anti climate change, that's how that's not how you phrase that. <laughs> But to fight climate change, right? Um, to to stop war, to to change the social justice system. It's not a matter of just advocating anti-war. We believe no war. They want to hear how are you going to stop it. They want to why, how, ifs, buts, material facts, and and so we, when you get to that situation, then you have green candidates who perhaps are not able to articulate those things, and then you have a candidate who like is independent who then comes in is like, well, I can talk about that stuff. And because that's a thing that appeals to us, they get support next thing. And people don't vet, right? They don't look, they don't look at somebody's past. It's, it, it plagues us at all levels of the party. We want to believe people are good, trustworthy, hardworking sorts who have volunteered in good faith and want to do the stuff. But we all know how humanity is and how people work. And so that's just not how it is. I think one of the things that we can do as a as a federation of state parties, leaving aside the national perspective for a second, is to make sure we do a really good job vetting our potential candidates. It's not hard. It just takes a little time, but it's absolutely worth it because not to put too fine a point on this, but people change in some of their perspectives. We had a, a presidential candidate um, back in the in the mid two thousands, who what was quasi green but green enough, uh, who of course over time has become an anti vaxxer She advocates against the Palestinians and supports the occupation. Uh, it's she's shifted right, her views to to much more to the right, and so it's important for us as greens to then look at the history of candidates who are currently looking at us. Cause maybe they've shifted too. maybe they used to be old school fascists and Nazis who were like, well, we can't be that let's rebrand. Just like all those people at the rage against the war rally who when confronted were like, Oh, well, we're not white nationalists anymore. We're, we're like American nationalists. And like, yeah, okay. What the hell it's a rebrand. And and like Americans need to be a bit more politically savvy about that. It's just sometimes I feel like, again, we're in that naive state or right? we're teenagers in a, in a way. And politically speaking, we're not mature. So we don't understand like properly how we're being exploited, how political groups are being manipulated. If you look at the history of the American government, it is demonstrably clear that they will infiltrate and try to disrupt any leftist group in the country that advocates against the industrial war complex. And so we have to understand they'll do that to us. Why would they not? It would make no sense at all for them not to. So whenever I see somebody like, you know, he didn't actually show up with like a big Confederate flag flying, right? Just a t-shirt. When you see that and you, and, and they advocate, I'm not going to follow the party stuff. It's like, I feel as if that's a pretty big indicator that that person is not here legitimately and they're here to disrupt it they're here to hijack a party and to completely discredit the greens in the eyes of progressive voters we had a case in vermont 
Um, so there's a thing that actually happens and it's really weird and it's only in a few states, but not every state allows the registered political party in that state to control who appears on the ballot using that party label. So in Montana, back in 2020, the Montana Green Party didn't have a candidate that they wanted to run for statewide office for governor. They didn't. And so a group came in from out of state and created a PAC. It was a Republican front, this whole thing. And they put themselves on the ballot as a green. We contacted the state, said that's not how it is. Like that's the state part, blah, blah. It ended up in a lawsuit, which we finally won back in 2021. Libertarians and greens both sued. We won and we got all of our legal expenses recovered. But essentially, in some states, you can't control your ballot line. So in those states, bad actors can simply show up with money, create ad campaigns and all the rest and claim that they are green or whatever, and then have people vote for them as if they were. This is a, a big problem. It's It's not everywhere, but because it exists in enough states, it means that like, so uh, ballot access is weird stuff. We could have hours of conversations about ballot access. Every state, all 50 of them, different rules. So it's very difficult to keep it all straight. But by and large, most states require a political party to run a POTUS candidate that is registered in at least 35 states for their down ballot ticket to count as their party votes. If you don't get the, if you don't have a protest candidate in 35 states, you can still run, but you have to run as an independent. So, as a as a political party wanting to run Greens, that means we have to run a POTUS candidate every every election cycle, so that they can be on the ballot in at least 35 states. <clears throat> can you say, look, the Libertarians aren't going to win. We're not going to win either. We saw how much money Bloomberg spent in his campaign. That was a billion dollars, and he didn't win. So it's it's not when, when you have political parties spending like, you know, a million dollars are probably not going to win the presidency. Maybe maybe a mass change of voters, you know, would do that. But and so I don't advocate for that. I'm not trying to say get a green president or even a libertarian because what would happen? It'd be lamed up. The only thing they could do is executive orders. What I advocate for is people understand politics differently. Politics are local. The the dog catcher, the school board, the conservation district, the city council, all of those races impact your life much more than some congressperson off in D.C., even though those are fancier, more flashy races. But if we want to change the, the society and change the world, we need to focus local uh, and focus on on races which are in our bailiwick, right? We're green. So we have environmental stuff, social justice. There are plenty of races and plenty of places that feature those issues. And when we can run on that stuff, we prevent hostile takeovers of our, our ballot line because we are in that position advocating real stuff. When someone comes in and it's off the message, people see it right away. And so I think it's that. You, it's a combination of like proper vetting of potential candidates ensuring that we have access to our own ballot line in the state and making sure that we run a candidate who can articulate our position. So if someone comes along and is trying to, to espouse anti-green views under you know a, a green cloak, it's very clear that it's not true. In, in Vermont, if you are a minor party, you can nominate your candidates 
But if you get uh, um, major party status, what happens is anyone who gets the required signatures will be the candidate, whether you like them or not. That's uh, uh, that's how that one joker got in on in 2008 on, in the green in the Liberty Union Party, and Liberty Union actually had a an anti-abortion candidate get on their ballot um, when they were major parties. So right at this point, we're kind of happy to keep the uh, the minor party status because we could keep <laughs> we could keep jokers out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really interesting how state ballot access laws work like that and how they're very very different in places i think that many americans don't really understand this and they don't understand the nuances of why it's this way and so you do get these critiques from you know people who are like well you're wasting your time and effort on you know a candidate that can't win that kind of stuff like that i think they're in many cases they're not wrong initially like overall but what they're missing is that you don't have to win a race to influence policy a lot of it's we're going to shift the overton window and if we can shift that window into the right spaces even if we don't win we've affected the policy and we've affected change that we want <clears throat> the only way you can do that though is when you're a candidate and presenting this progressive view that your opponents have to then like counter in some manner, which usually means adopting some pieces of what you're talking about into their own thing. And then slightly it shifts and slightly it shifts. And next thing you know, it's not a question of, well, should we be able to have abortions and stuff? It's more like, well, which kinds are safer than the others and this sort of stuff? Because everyone's then on board because the window has shifted. We're obviously dealing with a concerted effort to shift it to the right. And so you see a bunch of like, you know, it's not new, but anti-immigrant stuff, which always rises more and more as war and unemployment, you know, increases. Do you see the same sort of thing where there's a desire for a return to the traditional nuclear family, which represents some, I don't know, weird TV 50s ideal of like maybe I love Lucy or something. I don't even understand it because it isn't real. It's not real except in those Norman Rockwell pictures. I know the facts of the 50s as well as basically anyone else who doesn't didn't live then. And one of the more curious and interesting things, of course, was and it just to be honest, okay, odd little tangent here, but this is one of the things I think the nostalgia harkens to. So after World War II or during it, of course, women were massively employed in the workforce because there were so many men overseas. Well, when all those guys came home, right, they didn't want their guys to not have jobs. So they fired all those women. And who had just been trained and all this stuff and who had been empowered. And they just had that power taken right away. Not only that, they were now kind of shoved back into a housewife role. Well, lots of people resented that, rightly so. At the time, of course, doctors would like regularly prescribe Xanax and Valium and all these kind of things. But MDMA was also legal. And so they would prescribe that. So you would, I think this is where you get this myth of like this housewife in the 50s like being super busy all day long cleaning the house and doing all that stuff cooking dinner and just being like waiting with a drink when her husband gets home and all the rest i mean she's been taking mdma all day <laughs> yeah of course i would be too um 
But when that became illegal, they didn't change people from wanting that and the nostalgia of it, right? Like if they had that for any length of time, they're going to feel that that great loss. And for on both sides, like drugs are usually so good that people will ruin their lives over them. So they will work great for a lot of stuff. And if you're if you were a person who got disempowered and sent home and all those kind of things, and now there's this happy little pill that makes you actually feel happy and stuff, <clears throat> this creates this, you know, you're going to come home then also and have lots of sex. You're going to make babies. You're going to do all this stuff, hence baby booming and all these things. And I, I believe that this sort of nostalgia for the, and I don't want to say make America great because that's a stupid thing. But this nostalgia for a fictionalized past, roughly just out of the memory of the current generation, right? That's where it is. It's just out of our current memory. Uh, but it's fictionalizing and, and nostalgizing that. But it's it's a lie. It it's it's America is a is is essentially a matador. It's the red the red curtain is a lie. There's nothing there. And so we keep showing it all the time. And eventually I think Americans will wake up to this will will mature as a as a polity as more and more people come to our country as we gradually mature ourselves and we start to see these nascent activist groups form bigger and broader coalitions with each other the the anti-war movement then co connecting up with like the women's right movement which are super connected anyway and with queer rights and all these things, these broad-based coalitions will be able to shift the Overton window in a way which individual organizations basically couldn't. And so, like, I think that's optimistic in some sense. But with that sort of viewpoint in mind, this means that, like, as I advocate for Greens to run, I say to them things like, Running for local offices is great. We can hold our ballot line. We win. And most people don't actually understand how many offices we do win. In our last uh, series of elections, we won 33% of our races. In 2021, we won 40%. As it turns out, people will vote for us if we're running. We have to run more candidates in the right races. I think in the end, what happens is people will vote for third-party candidates at a local level but they get so polarized at the national congressional Senate level. Well, we can't have Donald Trump or we can't have Joe Biden. So, but on the local level, that's not the options. It's do we want Jane Smith or Adam Smith or June Smith? And it's less polarized in that way. So people will take chances where they won't at a national level. And so I think that's, that's a, uh, a thing we need to understand. I think that's a way for us as a party to collectively control our ballot lines to make sure that even if a you know some joker comes in with his Confederate flags and is oh my look, look that same guy in Florida, that same fellow once made a presumably sincere uh you know speech about how he thought that black people resented having slavery ended as early as it was because they weren't ready for freedom the fact that he said that out loud to anyone is shocking to me the fact that he advocated it as an actual thing to other reasonable adults is i, I don't understand it i it's the kind of perspective that is so completely outside my realm of understanding 
that I don't even try. It's it's like when someone's like, respect everybody's opinion and their opinion is, you know, the square of three is six. I'm not respecting that opinion. No, it's not a right opinion. That that's actually, I believe that line comes from people associated with the League of the South or similar uh, organizations. It's it's a, it's a real challenge for us, I think, as a as a collective group to like sort these things. As you probably know, like you and I talked a little bit briefly in our last conversation about like some of the internal problems that the Green Party had towards addressing queer issues. That hasn't changed. My, as as we all know, like last Transgender Day of Remembrance, there was the Club Q terrorist attack. And as the co-chair of the Lavender Caucus, I'm I'm pretty ashamed to say to you that not a single national leader reached out to the caucus to express their condolences. Nobody. Very few delegates even responded to my pleas on the list, my my statements about it. There, there was little engagement. And that was pretty disheartening. I got to be honest with you. Uh, to, to go through all the effort that I've gone through to educate the party about the intersectional nature of queer rights, how it impacts every one of the groups that we interact with, and then to have this particular event occur and no like outreach to us from our national leadership was, it was sobering. I was going to raise the issue that the, the uh, platform of the mass uh, greens, it seems to have some exclusions in it with regards to trans people. It doesn't seem to particularly mention us in a way I would do it, but you already brought this weakness up, so I didn't <laughs> have to bring it up. Oh, yeah. No, it's it. You're you're not. I, I'm not surprised that Massachusetts is a little shakier on it since some of the people in Massachusetts were the leading TERFs and gender critical people in the party. There was a, so again, okay, naming names thing here. This is kind of a trickier bit, right? But so I, back in like 2018, this became a very clear problem to me. And it took us two years to finally get to George's disaffiliation. During that two year time, there were certain people in the party who were by far the largest advocates of anti-trans perspectives. And eventually, so much so one person, I contacted his former political party. He's a delegate in Massachusetts. His name is David Keel. <clears throat> he used to be a member of uh, SPUSA. And so I contacted them and I said, hey, I know this is going to sound really strange. I'm the co-chair of Lavender Caucus in, in GPUS. And we're dealing with this guy. And I know he was in your party. What was your experience? And they wrote back to me. And their, sec their national secretary, and they told me that uh, he had destroyed three of their locals using transphobia. They had determined that he was a government agent and kicked him out of the party. He left that party and went right into the Greens and did the exact same thing. And so he's in Massachusetts. So it's a, not surprising to me that Massachusetts platform has been less robust in this regard. There's a lot of good comrades in Massachusetts, uh, Rainbow Green Party, who really do good work for us. But you know, votes are votes, and that's how that kind of thing works. And so, it's been it's been a challenge. We 
we do fundraising blasts around different uh, you know events for minority people around the different times of year and so one of the ones we do is of course for trans folks and things during around tdor and that gets like so much vitriolic transphobic responses from greens these are only responses going to party members yet they still really these are folks who are faux progressives they don't understand and they join the green party for the wrong reasons i think that it it is now clear because that we recently passed a platform amendment that specifically lists the word turf and gender critical GC as anti-green. You cannot have those views and be a green and in our party. It's our platform. And I'm really glad it's in there. The challenge is to hold people accountable, especially when they're your friends. I know so many people who are like, well, my friend always supported queer rights. They supported gay marriage. That is not the same thing. And now that other issues are coming up, they're shocked and surprised that the friends push back about trans rights or, you know, any sort of issue related to trans health care. And so it's been a, a sobering awakening for some of my colleagues, I think, that as much as they are progressive in many things, socially speaking, especially with queer folks, they're not. And I've talked about this a few times in, in the party itself and in other external form, forms, but there's like five phases of evolution that organizations go through. And I believe that we as a party, because we're still pretty new, right? We're, we've been around for basically 20 years. We are in phase two and we're going through a crisis phase, a crisis of leadership. We're shifting our identity. And so we're getting new leaders. We need new leaders who now represent that new perspective and all the rest. But so as a, you're, you're going through a transition phase, right? Combine that with the fact that we have to run POTUS candidates and all the rest. And it's it's going to be a challenging couple of years for us here. Once we sort it and get things squared away, going into the next POTUS cycle after that, so 2028 and then 2032, we'll have a much more solid progressive left identity. We'll have gotten rid of most of the, the turfs and most of these. I don't want to use any... Um, untowards language here but i want to say something like get these racist fucks out of the party and oh wait i did say that and so yeah i want to do that like they don't belong here and they shouldn't be coddled they shouldn't be given any quarter there's other political parties who support those views and they can go join them not be here and i i don't want to compromise on that at all there's no reason to. I don't think we should ever compromise on issues of human justice in particular, especially when we ourselves, I'm, I'm re collectively referring to me here, uh, are a minority population. I know what it's like to have these um, systems oppress you where you feel very marginalized, you can't do anything. And so you need help from your allies. It's just how it is. As they say what? It takes a, a village to raise a child. I think it takes a coalition to raise human rights to the point where the majority will accept them. Well, thank you very much. I, I just resonate so much with what you are saying. And I guess we will pick up this conversation at a later time because you have so many wonderful things to say. So I'm before before, before I read us out, uh, any, any last uh, words? Uh, 
Yeah, like I know maybe our conversation was a little on the pessimistic side a bit. Um, but I want to say like there's a lot of and especially with the transition within the party at the moment, the people really were upset and rightly so at the rage against the war rally. However, <clears throat> it is the case that groups undergo transition and change in leadership and not everyone's cut out for the rough and tumble back and forth of consensus work. Some people want to vote and just do things. So I would say if you're here, here's what I would like to leave with. If you're a potential candidate considering running for political office in 23 or 24, you should absolutely do so because your view is important. Your perspective changes this country. I know you you might think you're just some regular person at, in an apartment doing nothing, right? So how could you impact it? This is not true. Those people in those other offices are just like you. They're just regular people too. They have no idea what they're doing. They get in there and they learn. We can do the same thing. We need to take the power back. And we take the power back by understanding that local elections are important and we run candidates for them. Thank you very much. I Nice way to read us out. Thank you. This, this was VMN, Volume 3, Episode 12. VMN was formerly known as Vermont Movement News and can be found on podcast apps as Vermont Movement News. Thank you very much, Margaret. Cheers. Have a good day. You too. Take care.